Welcome to Short Course, episode 89, for January 20th, 2023. I'm your host, Ben Barry. A few months ago, I did an episode, episode 82, talking about values, and this was basically putting forth the idea that I think it's important that we understand why something is the way that it is so that we can reason about whether a given rule makes sense or not in the current era. So the easy, most obvious example is why is the capacity in production 10? Where did the number 10 come from? What was the reasoning? And does that reasoning still apply today? By the same token, I, I asked on that episode, and I actually still have not gotten a, a really convincing answer, but I, I asked, why is the length limit for limited 140? Where did 140 come from? Now, as I mentioned on, on a follow-up episode, 170, I believe, was the length of a 10-round 45 ACP 1911 magazine. So that's at least that's where the number came from. Is it relevant to today's open guns? That could be argued, but at least that's where it came from. And it's funny because I I was reasoning from this position and it came up the idea of Chesterton's fence came up in conversation and I was like, yeah, 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 I know what Chesterton's fence is. It's the idea that you can't take down the fence that you find unless you can explain why it was there. And uh, I realized that's exactly what I was doing here, except I, I wasn't even consciously doing it. It's just it's just the way that that things should be done. And so as the as the weeks have gone on, I've thought about more of these things and, and I just keep having these these questions and, and I keep thinking, where did this come from? Or does this make sense? What is what is the reason that something is a certain way? Does that reasoning still make sense? And if not, what would make sense in its place? So, for example, one one thing that I've been thinking about. So this week was was Shot Show, and so there was just tons of of new gun announcements and and things coming out. And even even before Shot Show, Dan Wesson announced their long overdue, long awaited DWX pistol, which is basically a, a cross between a, a 2011 and a, a CC 75. And then this week at at Shot Show, Beretta announces that they're coming out with a, a new single action only version of the the 92X, which by all means looks like a nice gun. And that got the wheels turning and got me asking, yeah, especially based on the the conversation on the the overhauling production podcast from a, a few weeks ago, what what is the point of requiring production to be double single or a striker fired gun? And Obviously, I, I wasn't there. I would love to talk to anyone that has some firsthand knowledge of what the discussion was at the time. But if you turn the the, the clock back, it it makes a little more sense. I mean, the production came around in, in 2000, and that was a time when there were Glocks out there, and people were buying them and interested in shooting them, but they weren't necessarily that widely used. There was still some skepticism about this whole, how can it be safe if it doesn't have a, a thumb safety or a heavy double action trigger pull? You know, you, you look at the guns, Smith & Wesson was, this was the era before the MNP when Smith & Wesson was making their, I, well, I don't know if they were still in production, but the, 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 the kind of cool gun was, a, you know, the, the Smith, what, third gen double single guns. There, if a police department was issuing a, a semi-auto, it was almost certainly not a 1911. They were not issuing 1911s to, to rank and file. It was it was probably some kind of double single, a, a Beretta 92, a Smith third gen, something like that. And then at the same time, the U.S. military was still issuing a, a double single gun. And when you really step back and think about it, 
the the mechanism of a double single gun is really kind of dumb. I mean, the the idea is basically you have to really want to take that first trigger pull, but then once you fired that first shot, bombs away. And I mean, if you don't want to have to train somebody to deal with a thumb safety, then then maybe that's a good system. But but ultimately, it it really is the kind of system that you would use in a military or a police force where training is at is at a premium, where you're not expecting to have sort of highly trained people. And and okay, I get it. At the time, double single guns were were de facto in police departments and and in the U.S. military and probably overseas militaries, but. 23 years later, the U.S. military is, is issuing a, a SIG 320. They're issuing a striker gun. I would imagine, I, I don't know, but every police department around here issues some kind of polymer frame striker fired gun. And so we're, we're at a point where duty guns have moved to basically standardizing from being a double single gun to being striker guns. And you can argue, I mean, I don't know how far back, I don't know when the, the first widely used double single gun was i i mean the, the oldest sort of widespread one that i'm aware of would be the the walther p38 which i mean that's that's a, a 40s era piece of technology and that replaced the luger which i believe had a a thumb safety on it but you look at you look at the 1911 you look at the browning high power these are these are single action guns this technology has been around for a long time it just wasn't adopted by police departments and militaries for for whatever reason so all of that to say does does requiring double single or striker, especially in the age of modern, really light, crisp striker aftermarket assemblies, even 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 without external modifications, even in a uh, if you imagine a rule set in production where you weren't allowed to put in an aftermarket trigger shoe, you can still get a pretty crisp three pound Glock trigger that is very shootable with just changing internal components. And so, does this? And I'm sure I'm not the first person to say this, but does this idea that production should not allow single action guns, does that make sense in the modern era? And this is one place where I, I would say I, I don't necessarily think it does. If someone came to me and said, hey, Ben, you get all the stuff you asked for, 15 round production, it has to go back to being a, a stock gun produced 2000 or more available to the general public. You can't modify it. It has to be within two ounces of stock weight and all that. But we're going to allow single action guns and all your CZ75s, your Shadow 2s, your Tan Folios, all those can just start hammer back with the thumb safety on. I don't see a problem with that because if we look historically, what was the reason for 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 having that rule about first double single and then striker guns? It it was rooted in the fact that those were the issued duty guns of the day. Well, the issued duty guns of today are striker guns and with modification they can easily be every bit as good as as a single action trigger. So I actually I actually don't have an issue with going to single action guns in in carry optics in some theoretical production optics or even in in regular production. And it's funny the more I thought about this the more I actually realized that in a lot of ways actually allowing allowing double single guns like a CZ75 or a Tanfolio allowing them to start single action only would actually enhance the approachability of a division like production or production optics because no longer would you even need to I mean take a take a Tanfolio for example out of the box the 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 double action is not great and they they need a little bit of work now it's work you can do at home swap some springs polish a little bit but you need to do that work whereas to some degree if you could just take an out of the box CZ75 
Tanfolio, any any double single gun with a thumb safety, right? So, you know, something like a Beretta 92 with a, a decocker safety where you can't start cocked and locked. Well, okay, they would have to go to to double action to holster. Just that's that's the only safe condition that gun is designed for. But a Beretta 92X with a thumb safety, if you just bought that, you wouldn't need to 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 mess with getting the double action nicer. You could just show up, shoot it cocked and locked, and if you wanted to work on the trigger, then you could. But actually, if we look at what the values of a stock gun production division are in in some ways allowing modern double single guns to just start cocked and locked if they can be safely holstered that way enhances that it doesn't diminish it and so that's just one of those examples where when you establish the values that you're trying to accomplish and you look at why rules were created a certain way sometimes you actually end up in somewhat of an odd situation but again to me it, it actually the more i think about it the more allowing single action guns into production and carry optics, the I I can't come up with a good reason not to allow it at this point. Another one that again I've just kind of been ruminating on is is the way the USPSA classifier system works, specifically the fact that we don't have a single classifier stage, or I guess now two like IDPA, they added a, a second one. But USPSA has multiples, and the idea is new ones are added and old ones are cycled out. But right now, I, I mean, I, I couldn't see a, a count on the page, but I just scrolled through and I, I counted 92 classifiers that are, that are currently active for USPSA. And for each classifier, obviously, you, you have to have an accurate high hit factor for all eight divisions. And so that's, that's just a huge number of, of data points to get right. And I think we all know that not all classifiers are are well calibrated. Not all of them have a an appropriate high hit factor. It's either too high or too low. Maybe in one division it's fine, but in another it's not. Uh, there was actually some some really interesting data from uh, competition shooting analytics on on Instagram this week about which divisions generally had easier or or harder classifiers, but also just across divisions, which ones were were the easiest and the hardest. And I think we all know this. You you shoot what you think is a pretty good run on something, and you're like, yeah, that was that was maybe like a high A run, and then you plug it into the calculator or you look at practice score, and it's a it's a mid B, and and it just you look at it and you do the math on what you would have to shoot that stage in to to get a hundred percent, and you just look at it and you're like, I don't I don't know where they got this number, but it's it wasn't it wasn't based on actual people shooting this stage, and so the question is. How many classifiers does it make sense to have? And what should the what should the breakdown of those classifiers be? So another discussion that that came up recently was was this idea that people in 10 round capacity states, okay, we need to make sure that there are there are some classifiers that they can shoot so they're not shooting stages that require more than 10 rounds without a reload against people who don't have to do that reload. So, you know, some fraction of the of the classifiers absolutely should should support those people. But it was something like somebody somebody counted there's something like 70 odd classifiers that meet that criteria alone. So, 70 odd of the 92 that we have meet that criteria. And so the more classifiers that we have, the harder it is to keep them all accurate. And so the question is, what is the right number of classifiers to have active in USPSA at any one time? The number is definitely bigger than one and smaller than 92, but what's, what's a good middle ground? What can we actually realistically do? And, and maybe 92 with better processing, if there was some kind of automatic algorithm, 92 
high hit factors times eight divisions, maybe that maybe that's actually automatically doable if if it was not as much of a manual process as it seems to be. Again, nobody really talks about how the high hit factors are set. And the the thing that's published about it being the average of the top ten runs on record, that that doesn't seem to be the way it's actually done. So maybe maybe we could do ninety-two, but as with anything within those ninety-two, a few of them get run the most. And so is there some way that we could winnow down the the list of classifiers to some number that's more appropriate? What what number is that? I, I can't say for sure, but ninety-two is probably too many. And so then we have a discussion about what are the things that having multiple classifiers are supposed to test? Is it something where if a match, if you have a club that runs a match every week and they should be able to cycle through 52 classifiers in a year? Okay, maybe that's a good number. Maybe it's 52. You have, you have one for every week of the year, something like that. I don't know, but, but that's, that's the kind of framing I'd like to see brought to the discussion, not just oh, well, we came up with some new classifiers, so we're going to add them in. Meanwhile, people lose their faith that every that the classifiers already on the books are accurate. And I actually think this is really important because I think the classifier system should actually be something that people really have confidence in. I mean, it's it's one of these things that we are paying headquarters to do. Individual sections, individual areas, it's not something that can really be split up. It's something that we need to be centralized, done once and done well. And if you do that, if every classifier, maybe there are only 24 of them, but if every single one of them in every single division, you actually feel like has a well-calibrated, consistent high hit factor, such that if you were to line them all up and you had a 24-stage classifier match and you had a bunch of shooters shoot all of them, they would be within plus or minus 5%, assuming they didn't have a gun jam or something, you know, something to that level where every single classifier in every single division was well calibrated. There's actually real value to the membership there. You can actually have somebody who can trust the classifiers as a metric of their progress, right? You might have somebody who only shoots one club match a month and they're dry firing hard, they feel like they're really tuned up, and then they go shoot the club match and the match director just happens he doesn't know any better, but he just happens to pick one of these that for that shooter's division has a has an unrealistically high hit factor. And so the, the shooter feels like he does well, he shoots the match well, but then he looks at his classifier result and it's 10% below where he shot the month before, even though he feels like and objectively is a better shooter. Do, do you see what the problem here is? It, it, we need the classifier system to be trustworthy. It needs to be reliable. And I'm not, I'm not worried about paper GMs and all that. I mean, if, if somebody wants to, to, to put together enough scores and reshoots and whatever to get a paper GM card. That's always to some degree, I think always going to be possible. That's not something that I'm, I'm worried about chasing down right now. I'm just saying for people who don't travel and shoot big matches, who don't necessarily get to stack up against other shooters face to face or, or on, on a common set of stages, the, the classifier match should be this sort of ongoing postal match where you can, you can see yourself stack up against other shooters and and see where you come out and feel like you actually have a good a good yardstick a good consistent measurement of your skill from month to month year to year because that's something you don't get from stages having stages that are different at every match each one presents its own problem i love that part of the sport i don't i don't want anything to happen to that but there is an element of the sort of steel challenge repeatability you shoot the same thing over and over again and and you feel you can see the sense of progress now, I'm not saying we go to 
six or eight classifier stages to to that level of you know steel challenge ishness. But I think that the classifier system, as it's sort of become neglected as this, oh well, it's kind of a crapshoot whether you get a good one or not. The ninety nine series, oh, those are shot up. Don't bother trying to do well on them. It just it it is a betrayal of what headquarters could and should be doing for members who can't necessarily shoot bigger matches and and want a way to track their practice over time. Another place where I think framing the discussion, establishing the, the values that you're trying to optimize for is important, I think, and I think this is partially on the brain because of, of SHOT Show this week, but the idea of are we are we building the sport around guns or around people? And what I mean by that is I, I don't personally think that we need a place in the sport for every single gun made by every single manufacturer. I think what we need is a place in the sport for all the different types of shooters interested in practical shooting. And we can draw the line somewhere. We can say, hey, there's some guy who is only interested in practical shooting if he can do it with a J-frame. And we can say, that's we can't make that guy happy and do all the other stuff we want to do. So we, we have to draw that line somewhere. But to me, looking at guns, looking at gear, saying, oh, there are this many manufacturers making this type of gun, to me, that's, that's secondary. That's not the value we should be optimizing for. You know, I've, I've laid out in, in past podcasts, I think that there's sort of, I, I look at it as there being three levels of customization that I think people generally want to do to their guns. There are people who want to buy a gun, a factory gun made in, you know, some assembly line somewhere, shoot it and just leave it relatively stock, and they're not that interested in, in tinkering with it or adding weights and all this, maybe add some grip tape, change the grip panels, very simple, user-modifiable type things. That's that's the sort of first level of not very much modification. That's, that's the stock gun division. You then have a, an intermediate level where you have someone who's interested in maybe buying a, a semi-custom gun or a, you know, a fully custom 2011 but it's not the it's not a it doesn't have a slide mounted optic and it's not shooting super high power nine millimeter high pressure type stuff. So that's you know that's that's limited. And then you have the the full out do whatever you want comps lights lasers magwells go nuts. And that's the the high level of customization. And I think fundamentally that's what we should be looking at. And so the idea is for each of those audiences, assuming that this is an accurate depiction of of the the people who are in the pool that we want to build USPSA for. Maybe there's a fourth group I'm not talking about. If so, let me know. But if if those three groups map onto generally the population that we want to build the sport for, then whether or not every single gun that Glock makes or whether or not every single gun that Ruger makes has a place in the sport is not really relevant. The question is, can somebody who wants to compete at their given chosen level of customization, can they reasonably acquire a gun that will allow them to compete with the other people in that level of customization. So this doesn't even necessarily mean that there have to be a lot of manufacturers, but if there are a ready supply of eight millimeter or eight round nine millimeter revolvers to shoot revolver minor, as long as anybody that wants to compete in that, in that division, which again, in my schema is kind of out of the picture, we can discuss where it goes, but as long as there's a, there's someone reliably making a good supply of that gun and people can get it reasonably affordably, then then that's fine. But in the in the world of something like this, this actual stock gun division, the fact that there are 10, 20 different vendors that that could all make something that could be viable 
in a in an actual stock production division that's that just means that you have options but you're not required to get a shadow 2 or a stock 2 or a glock 34 or a canic whatever you as long as we're building the rule set for the people and then the guns come second i think that that should be the way that we frame the problem looking at walking around shot show and trying to make sure that every gun that that someone is trying to sell has a division obviously that's counterproductive we're not here to make a sport for guns we're here to make a sport for people who want to compete at the different levels and in the different ways they want to compete some people yeah they just they want to go nuts they want to shoot as fast as possible they want the comp the dot and and that's good for them that that's not really interesting to me to me i just want to shoot i just want to shoot cheap bullets and i want to have to be accurate i like minor power factor and so to me having an actual production stock gun division that doesn't require me to put base pads and springs in my magazines such that they no longer lock back when empty which again as i've said before if you ask me on my carry gun do i want an extra round of capacity or it to lock open when it's empty i'll take it locking open when it's empty that's a lot more practical in the sense of knowing when your gun is empty and so to me that's 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 what i think we should optimize for we should look at the people that we're trying to build the game for and then figure out how the guns that manufacturers make can fit into that. But looking at the guns first, instead of thinking about what are the people in the sport, why are they in the sport, what are they looking for? If we just look at the guns, then we're, we're going to go to the wrong place. We're going to make the wrong decisions because the, the system, the reasoning framework that we're using to make decisions is completely misaligned. And I think that's to some degree what we're seeing. I mean, I think also a lot of the, the issues currently are from lack of foresight and just, oh, we didn't think about that. We didn't think someone would actually make a nine ounce brass flashlight. So we didn't add a, a weight limit on the flashlights. Uh, you know, I mean, it's just lack of foresight about that kind of thing. But, but I, I, think, I think that's where a lot of these decisions are coming from is looking at the gear and not thinking about the people. So I've got one other thing that I, I added last minute as I was as I was preparing this episode because I thought it was an interesting example of, like I said earlier, when you when you establish the values and the criteria, sometimes it takes you to weird spots. So to me, I, I don't actually shoot production, whether it's 10 round or 15 round production. I, I I'm not in favor of limited capacity divisions because I love reloading. I, I do it because I have to. But to me, having a having a division where you're just shooting basically factory magazines without extended base pads, without chasing being able to, to jam one more round in the magazine, without chasing followers and springs that wear out more easily, that are more sensitive to dirt. I, I just I want I want factory mags that I don't have to worry about cleaning between stages, where if they get a little grit in them, I just kind of, you know, shake them out and, and they're good to go because they're not pushing the limit of reliability. They're, we're not trying to jam every single round in there. And so to me, that's why, for example, this proposal that we go to a system where production is the, the, the capacity for the gun is whatever you can fit in the magazine and the base pad, as long as the gun with the base pad fits in the current production box. The, the series of incentives that that creates is still to have expensive base pads to try and get springs and super flat followers and compromise reliability. And if somebody does show up to a match and they're shooting their bedside Glock 17 or whatever, and their mag only holds even 17 loaded up and the next guy, oh, he can get 19 plus one or 20 plus one with, with his 
base pad that'll that'll still fit in the box. At that point, you're still incentivizing people to in the stock gun division, you're still pushing quote unquote stock gun division uh, to push reliability, to optimize all these things where to me, that's not the point. And so if the, if the goal of what we're trying to do with production capacity is just basically make it so you can show up, you, maybe you put a, a base pad on, that's a little bit larger just to make the mag easier to grab it. It's not a brass base pad that you're trying to add a ton of weight with. It's not adding capacity. It's just makes it a little bit easier to grab, which you see those on, on carry guns fairly commonly. Something that, again, it's one of these places where I, I started, I initially, when I proposed this idea, I kind of laughed to myself about it, but, but what if the rule was in production, you can put as many bullets as you want in the magazine, but if the stage is a, requires more than 15 rounds, you have to reload somewhere during the stage. And if it requires more than 30, you have to reload twice. Well, ROs can definitely count the number of times you reload. And so at that point, yeah, okay, maybe some guy shows up with his Glock 17 with 17 round factory mags, and there's somebody else who who can fit 18, 19, 20 rounds into his special go fast magazine. But that guy at the end of the day, he's he maybe has a little more wiggle room on makeup shots. He has a little more space where he reloads during the stage because he has more bullets in, in his bigger mags. But at the end of the day, they're doing the same number of reloads. That system, if the values that we establish, that the goal is to not incentivize chasing capacity, chasing springs and followers, yes, you, that's, that's allowed, but it's not significantly rewarded. Well, it's also enforceable, right? That's another complaint about 10 rounds, 15 rounds. All of these is, is how do you, you know, do you have ROs counting? How is that enforceable? Well, I mean, the de facto, honestly, what I'm describing is kind of the way at least IRO which is on a given stage, I know the round count. And if some guy is shooting 10 round production, I can figure out how many, how many reloads at a minimum he's going to need to do. So if it's a 22 round stage, I know that he's going to have to do at least two reloads. Am I counting one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten? 10? No, of course not. But if he gets to the end of the stage and he's only done one reload, which again has never happened, but if he, if that scenario were to happen, I would know that something fishy is up. And so Again, I think if we establish the values, if we establish the goals that we're trying to reach, then we might come across unconventional solutions, but I think that's actually exactly where we want to go. Now, am I saying this method of, oh, you take the round count, you know, divide by a certain number and round down, and that's the minimum number of, of reloads in the stage? Am I saying that's the, the best option? No, but I'm saying it's, it's not the worst that I've heard either. And so I, I think it's another one of these examples where we need to figure out what's important, what we're optimizing for, and then we figure out how we get there. This, it's sort of, it's sort of like someone going on a road trip and they don't have a map. It's just every intersection they come to it's, do we go left, right, or straight? That's the way that, that the current board feels and has felt for years. It, It feels like there's no map. There's no plan. There's no vision. It's just, all right, we're here. What's the next turn? What's the next turn? And so we just, there's this, this aimlessness, this feeling of what's going to come next. We don't know. And, and it doesn't seem like it's actually heading in any coherent direction. And I think I, I know I'm frustrated with it. I think a lot of the people out there shooting the sport are frustrated with it. And I think we need vision. We need values. We need to establish what's important and then figure out how to get there. And I don't see that right now happening. Obviously, I am running for Area 6 director. That's one of the 
things that I would like to bring to the role and just generally the the approach that I take when I when I analyze problems like this. So hopefully that's interesting, thought provoking. Definitely send me an email if uh if you have some thoughts about what I've said here. It's always interesting to get a get a response back if if something resonates or it doesn't or hey, here's the thing you haven't thought about. Those those are actually the the emails I love getting the most because I want to make sure I'm I'm balancing all the trade-offs and I can't balance things I'm not aware of. So when somebody tells me about something, they've they've done me a favor. So, I know I say it at, at the end of every episode, but definitely sit down, send me an email. I'm I'm curious to hear what you guys out there listening to this think, good or bad. Well, that wraps up this episode of Short Course. My email is ben at barryshooting.com. Talk to you next time.